Welcome. Uh, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Jones Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy, and I welcome you to this uh, brown bag lunch, although it doesn't look like anyone's eating lunch, uh, with Jeff Zucker. I was gonna, I was gonna say, but uh, I didn't want to. <laughs> I'm a guest, so. Well, let me put it this way: uh, people can eat lunch. I see. No doubt, someone will. Um, I don't think there is anyone who knows more about television than, uh, than Jeff Zucker. He has been at it uh, since he graduated from Harvard. Uh, he was the youngest producer of the Today Show at 26 and has spent his entire career until very recently at uh, NBC. Uh, when Comcast uh, decided that uh, negotiated to buy NBC in all of its forms, uh, the decision was also inc included that uh, Jeff would be leaving NBC, uh, reportedly not at his choice. Uh, but the fact is that Comcast, if you know anything about Comcast, it is a uh, culture and a company that, uh, not surprisingly perhaps, uh, likes to put its own people in and run things its own way. And Jeff left NBC and that Comcast deal became uh, the... The, 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 the final version of it was, uh, was done about 10 days ago. Uh, which frees Jeff to say whatever he wishes. That's, uh, that's, the, uh, that's, that's the important thing. Uh, <laughs> our purpose today is to have a conversation about the news and about NBC and about the future of uh, digital technology as it affects news and entertainment on television especially. And he and I are going to chat for a few minutes and then we will open it up to your questions. Jeff, let me, today is an interesting day, a very interesting day, because of the announcement of uh, the merger of AOL and Huffington Post, or I should say the acquisition of the Huffington Post by AOL, although quite frankly, I'm not so sure that's what the actual, what actually happened. I think Ariana Huffington may have just acquired AOL, I, I, I'm not sure. But she is not walking away. She, who created the Huffington Post, has been, is going to be the head of essentially all of uh, AOL's news and news, quasi-news uh, operations, from movie, movie phone to, uh, to their patch, which is a, a big effort by AOL to do local, very hyper-local news, to their politics coverage and one thing and another. So, looked at from your perspective of uh, someone who is interested in these things as a, uh, as a profession and also as, a, as what could be considered a student of it, what do you see? What is the meaning? How important is this? So, uh, first of all, let me just say thank you for asking me to be here today. I'm, uh, I love coming back here and uh, spending time in Cambridge, so just let me, let me say uh, I really appreciate you inviting me. Um, uh, and I agree that today is, uh, is not an insignificant day uh, in terms of news and information uh, online. And I think if you, if you believe in news and information and where it's going and, and believe it has a future uh, on the web, then today was a very good day. Uh, and, and especially if you're an investor or if you're a, uh, uh, someone who wants to make their career in it, I think that... that AOL's acquisition of Huffington Post um, was, a, was an important step forward. Uh, I know a little bit about this world only because we tried for the last 18 months at NBC to buy the Huffington Post. Um, and uh, so, um, and that probably wasn't public before, so. Uh, but, uh, you know, because I, I, I actually think Ariana and, and her team there have created a, 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 very, um, a very good site. And um, we could never agree on price is why it never got done, um, and, which is why those things never get done. Uh, but but this, this finally got done today, and I think it, was, it shows both a commitment on AOL's part, I think, to really be a major player in news and information. They, they stated that, and I think that I take them at their word on that, and I think it's... It's part of uh, Tim Armstrong's uh, uh, game plan, I think, to really revitalize AOL, and I think he's well on his way to doing that with this. And I think <coughs> with regard to the Huffington Post, I think it does two things. I think it helps the team there monetize their investment in it, and it's obviously it's a, a good payday for them. 
But I also think it does, as you said, give Ariana, uh, who's going to get editorial control of, of the AOL news and information sites, a real platform, an even bigger platform on which to play. And I think this just continues to show that, uh, or, or, or does show now, that there is going to be, uh, there's going to be a game for news and information online. And, uh, and that, you know, everybody says, oh, well, you can't monetize it, or it's so disaggregated that, you know, you can't get people to one site. I think this is a, this is a significant step forward in, in, in both of those, uh, in, in fighting both of those things. And, and I think if you believe in news and information, and if you believe in it on the web, this is a this is a good day for that. You have the opportunity to look carefully at the Huffington Post. Is the Huffington Post a money-making enterprise? Well, <laughs> I can't remember the NDA I signed about it, um, or whether or not that's run out yet. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I guess what is the fi- what's the model that makes it worth three hundred and thirty million dollars? What is it going to? do that's going to make it worth that for AOL? Well, actually, the truth is I don't know what its finances are today. Um, The reports are that it's actually having, uh, it's going to have a very good year this year. I know from our sites, I know from other things we've been involved in, you know, this world world is improving, uh, you know, through advertising. uh, And I think that's always been the the issue. I, I said like three or four years ago that my issue with, you know, putting material content on online was that we were trading analog dollars for digital pennies. You know, and today I think that there's been progress with regard to that and we're now up to, you know, I think we're probably somewhere between digital quarters and digital 50 cent pieces. Um, you know, I don't know that we ever get back to the analog dollar, but, you know, if you can aggregate enough things, you can add it back up to the dollar. Um, you're going you're gonna to do it through advertising and, and through subscription models and those are the two things that are going to help you uh, make the transition uh, online. It's going to happen, and we can't be in denial about it. And, uh, um, you know, we all want immediate satisfaction now, and we want, we want immediate business models to, to be in place. It doesn't work like that. You know, the transition from, uh, you know, the transition from radio to, to television, black and white to color, uh, you know, broadcast the cable to satellite, all of these things happened over time. Today, because everybody can tweet whatever we're saying here, we want it to happen like this. You know? So these transitions take time. Business models evolve. And I think business models for news and information online will, will happen over time. They won't be one for one what we've had in the analog world, but they will happen. <laughs> well, <clears throat> again, I'm not, I, I, I don't deny any of the, anything that you've said. That said, though, I mean, for instance, when Rupert Murdoch brought, bought MySpace, paid a lot of money for it, and reportedly that was not a that has not proven to be a a, a good investment from the perspective of of a return on investment so well, far. Well, see, I actually don't know that that's fair uh, to News Corp and to Rupert. The fact is, all of these things have a time uh, and a place in time, and the fact is, had he sold MySpace three or four years ago, he would have been a genius again with regard to that. You know, it's why selling Huffington Post today, you know, you'll never know for sure could she have held on, could they have held on to it and made more money later or would would its value have declined? Well, the fact is MySpace actually, its its value increased tremendously from the time it was bought. Now, it has subsequently been you know, dethroned by things like Facebook and Twitter and other things that, that you know, the younger generation uses. Uh, so it doesn't have quite the same value that it did five years ago. He just, he just didn't time it properly. Well, I mean, you say that its value has increased enormously, <clears throat> but it's not increased enormously because of dollars that it was putting into the bottom well, line. Well, it increased, of, it increased in time. It increased in time over when he bought it at a certain point. It now has lost a lot of that value uh, because they didn't seek to monetize it, you know, when it was at its peak. Now, how do you ever know when it's at its peak? I mean, that's always the, that's always the challenge. Of course, you know, Huffington Post has decided that, that this was a good enough deal, so they were going to take it. Uh, I think the danger in all of the, those social media sites is that there's always another site that replaces and that comes along and that becomes hot. Uh, you know, with regard to the news and information, 
you know, and this is, I think it's a different conversation. Uh, news and It's the same conversation. In fact, I'm glad that we're here because this, this seems to be a play that says there is a world outside social networking that matters online in a significant way. Well, I think I, I agree with you, and I think that's true. I mean, look, social media is incredibly important and is changing the way that the world communicates. You know, people are journalists today because they have a, because they can twi uh, tweet. You know, they think they're a journalist. Uh, you know, people are, are journalists because they have a flip cam camera or they have a blog. Now, by the way, I don't subscribe to that, okay, but I'm just saying that, that that's where the, where the world is. It used, to be that we, uh, it used to be that we would ask questions and then write our stories. Today we write our blogs and maybe we'll ask the questions later, but probably not. So, you know, it is a, it's a different world that, that we all live in. Um, it's why I think, it's, I'm a little, I got a little ahead of myself, but it's why I do think journalism will matter uh, in the future. Uh, because, you know, even though, because everybody has a blog and so they think they're a journalist, but the fact is there's value in the brands that have been established. And there's value, you know, there's still equity in NBC Nightly News. And there's equity in the New York Times. And there's equity in, now maybe there's new equity being created in the Huffington Post on AOL, and, and they've been able to do that in five years. And if that's the case, good for them. That, that's great. But brands matter, and they brand, brands probably matter more today than they ever did because everybody's got a blog, and everybody's got a journal, and everybody thinks they're a journalist. But if you go and, uh, and really want to know what's going on in Egypt, then you have to read the New York Times, or, or you have to uh, you know, read the Financial Times, or, or whatever. You know, there are many sources that you can seek out. But, but not everybody's source. So things matter beyond just social media, and I think journalism and brands will, in, will, will be even more important going forward because in a world where there's a thousand voices, you have to know who to trust. Well, if you were you know, predicting how AOL will use Huffington Post or how Ariana will try to, you know, what, what will they do with this? I mean, here, are they just going to have it as a, as a property, will it be just something to add to the AOL, you know, homepage, or how will it? How do you think they will use it? Why well, I, is it valuable to them? In that well, way? you know, according to reports, and again, I haven't seen the latest, but you know, they had 25 million visitors a month to Huffington Post, uh, all of whom are commenting and sharing and and being very active and 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 uh, and communal within, within the Huffington Post site. I think the attraction for AOL is to, is to bring those eyeballs uh, and that community within the AOL community, uh, which will bring both users and advertising. Again, I, I'm not part of the, of the strategic planning, but I, I assume this but is what they're thinking. you had an idea for yeah. how NBC was Yeah, doing. I mean, well, at NBC we had a slightly different view uh, because... So, so I think that's what's going on uh, at AOL, I, I would imagine. At NBC, just so, so everybody understands what our view there was, was because we had MSNBC, the cable channel, which obviously had a, a pretty uh, distinct point of view, shall we say. Um, uh, and then we had MSNBC.com was, was the online site. Those two things didn't really uh, mesh because MSNBC.com was really the online site for NBC News proper. And, uh, and did not really have a point of view. I mean, you, you could somehow find MSNBC television within it, but it really wasn't its, its main thing. And what we wanted to do was develop a site that, was, uh, that could go along with MSNBC, the cable channel, and we thought Huffington Post was the, was the nearest match to that. And so that was, our, that was what we wanted to do strategically, and let MSNBC.com exist separately and have Huffington Post be part of... Uh, have Huffington Post be part of MSNBC, the cable channel, didn't happen, obviously. You were, you were close to Keith Olbermann and had, was, were, were said to be his protector within, the, uh, within who NBC. Who said that? Well, I have read that. And I believe what I read, of course. Oh, of course, right. Uh, but, I mean, seriously, what is the smart way to understand the departure of Keith Olbermann? Um, so... Um, I hate to do this, but um, and I'll talk about anything you want to talk about. That's just uh, uh, I'm going to have to let uh, stand what has been said by the company on that one um, for reasons that I'm sure you can understand. Well, or not. 
Okay, well, how about looking at the prospects for MSNBC without okay. Keith Olbermann? Okay, there we go. Uh, look, I think, that, um, I think that MSNBC will be fine without Keith, uh, which is to take nothing away from Keith, uh, um, because he, he obviously was an incredibly important part of building that brand, and I don't think that, that we would have gotten to where we were without Keith. Having said that, I think that um, that brand has been built now. Uh, I think there are other personalities and voices there that are incredibly strong. Rachel Maddow, I know, was here recently. Uh, Ed Schultz, Lawrence O'Donnell, um, who I know has been here in the past. Uh, uh, Chris Matthews. You know, most of those voices did not exist at MSNBC uh, 18 months ago. And, and so I think there has been a real uh, plan in place to strategically build that asset. And though, you know, listen, when you lose a star quarterback, it always hurts. Uh, but, you know, nobody thought the, the Green Bay Packers would be okay after Brett Favre, and yet they won the Super Bowl last night. So the fact is, uh, you know, it's hard to replace uh, people like Brett Favre and, and Keith Olbermann. But I think that uh, MSNBC is in good shape, and I think they'll be okay. And um, if, now that you're <clears throat> a citizen again, right, uh, and can talk about anything you want except for that okay. thing you just asked me about. Okay. Well, this is what I would like you to talk about, and that is, as a citizen, uh, how do you look at cable news and the culture of cable news now, and what it has become, especially in prime time? Well. Um, you know, look, I don't know that my answer is a lot different being a citizen than it was uh, two weeks ago, which is, look, I understand why uh, I understand why you asked me that question, and I understand why people think that somehow the emergence of Fox News over the last decade and MSNBC over the last, you know, four years uh, has somewhat led, has somehow led to the uh, coarsening of our culture and the political discourse in Washington. Um, you know, there's no question that, that uh, there's no question that there's a, um, that it has created, you know, more noise. But, um, you know, I think it's too, uh, it's too easy to blame that on, uh, on the fact that Washington hasn't gotten a lot done and that people are, uh, you know, actually um, uh, yelling things out during the State of the Union address at one another. I think it's too easy to blame that on, on cable news networks. Um, do I wish that the tone was a little less nasty and was a little less um, polarizing? Sure, I think that would probably be better for those channels, too, and maybe society. But I think this is all, you know, we, we live in a time where you know, uh, it's all part of the fabric. I mean, the Internet is one of the great inventions of our time and probably one of the most destructive inventions of our time. Uh, and so I don't know how we can say that cable news is the problem as opposed to the Internet where, you know, uh, you can write anything you want. doesn't matter if it's true or not. And you can comment in any way and, and be anonymously racist and... and uh, and hateful uh, online. I mean, you know, at least on the cable news networks, if you want to be hateful, most of the time you show your face. And so, so look, I, uh, I, I think that uh, I actually give the audience more credit. Uh, you know, we, we're very close to the media, and so we love to cover the media, and we love to, to talk about the media. But you know the audience. The audience gets it uh, almost all of the time. And if uh, if you know, th there's so many choices now out there, and so many different ways to get your news and information. And um, I think uh, alleging that Fox News and MSNBC are what's wrong with the country is way too simplistic. Well, the model for, for cable news that the BBC has is a very different one. No, we don't have one in this country that is like that. CNN sort of started that way, but it is no longer. Yeah, but I think, I think this is, you know, you, you bring up the BBC. I mean, the Fleet Street and the British newspaper system 
actually, you know, obviously Rupert Murdoch's responsible for a lot of that, but not all of it, but, but a lot of it. Um, you know, I mean, this is not dissimilar to what that has been for, for a long time. No, I don't disagree. All I'm saying is that there is not an American cable, I mean, they call themselves cable news channels, but they're not devoted to cable news in the kind of way that you were saying just a few well, moments ago you think there's a future for well, well, journalism. I, I think, yeah, well, I think, I think look, the idea that these are cable, first. The, the idea that these are cable news channels, and I'm talking about Fox and MSNBC, I think CNN is in a different category. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, listen, uh, I, uh, I, I like watching Bill O'Reilly at night um, because it's entertainment, you know? But I think you have to watch it for what it is. You can't pretend that, um, you know, it's, it's, you're going to get your news from there. But I think he's incredibly entertaining. Um, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with him. I'm just saying it's a form of entertainment. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can choose to watch that or you can choose to watch the you know, uh, the reality show that's on one of the cable networks. But it's, it's all, it's entertainment. And, and, you know, I don't think that uh, we should take it literally that, that this is where we're going to get our news uh, from, per se. Look, I think, that, I think the president went on with O'Reilly yesterday. I think that was one both incredibly important that he did it, and I think it was incredibly good. And I actually think that, I think O'Reilly did a good interview, and I think that Obama was... was was good in his uh, in the interview. Um, uh, I thought the background was terrible, but um, but but I thought that the uh, the interview was good and and that I think was helpful. What do you think about the issue of Al Jazeera's English language report, which can't get on Comcast or other cable channels or networks around the country? They've been because of the Egyptian coverage. They have been mounting a full court press to get that and AOL has been one of the vehicles for for doing that. Well I think one of the unfortunate things is that you know some of these channels that we've been talking about go after some of those distributors if they were to put Al Jazeera on there uh, and I think that's part of what's behind this is there's a little you bit mean of MSNBC and CNN or what? No 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 I, I mean that that you know so, some people would attack some of the distributors like Comcast and and others who don't carry it uh, for being un-American, for carrying Al Jazeera. And I think that's part of what, what the problem is, which is incredibly un, un, unfortunate. Because um, they would describe them as unpatriotic in carrying Al Jazeera, which uh, I think is, is, you know. Are you familiar with Al Jazeera's English language report? Yeah. What yeah. do you think? I mean, look, I, 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 I think it's another voice. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it, it should be out there. Have an issue with that? One of the things that uh, that you did at NBC, you were, you know, you really had a broad experience from being the president of the Crimson at, at your Harvard days to uh, uh, to working on the Today Show and the Nightly News, and of course all the entertainment uh, programming it's, as well. One of the things that I know that you have thought about is the idea of the role that entertainment programming plays in terms of the national conversation about issues of importance in public affairs. Now, exactly where the Real Housewives of New Jersey fits into this, I'm not entirely sure, but, uh, but uh, what, what? That probably is not helping, by the way, <laughs> as opposed to the cable news networks. Uh, you were, you know, you were picking shows for primetime NBC. You were you were trying to both be successful in terms of viewership, but I suspect that there were some other things going on because we were talking before briefly, and you talked about how important it was to believe in some programs and really have a, a vested sort of, uh, almost an emotional commitment to them. How does that work, and why is it so difficult? To find hit programs? To find programs that both hit that sweet spot. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was looking not long ago at some uh, at, at Northern Exposure, an hour-long sort of comedy drama that took on some of the most important issues of the day in a way that was very entertaining and very sophisticated and really, really interestingly done both as entertainment and as something right. that had more, more. Now, there's no program, I would say, submit, remotely like that now. Yeah. 
Um, okay, well, there's a lot in there. <laughs> there's a lot of questions in all of that. Um, and it was a hit show. I mean, it was a popular yeah, show. Yeah, Northern, yeah. It was Alaska before Alaska was cool. Um, uh, so let me, let me try to address a couple of the, the yeah. things you said. First of all, uh, first of all it's uh, really hard to, to know what's going to work. Uh, you know, if, if, we, uh, if we knew what was going to work, everything would be a hit. Um, so that's uh, clearly not the case. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot of, lot of circumstances that go into a, a show becoming a success. You know, most of the shows that we are so fond of uh, actually should have been canceled based on their ratings and their initial runs. Uh, Seinfeld ran for three years before it had any ratings. But, but the folks at NBC at the time, they, they thought there was something there and they believed in it. You know, The Office, uh, the American version of The Office was a disaster in its ratings its first year, kind of its second year too. Uh, but you know what? We believed in it. We thought there was something there. We thought there was something to Steve Carell. And we believed in it. We, we, we stuck with it. And it emerged. Cheers was the lowest rated show on television its first year on the air. And yet NBC, they, they stuck with it and it, it, it worked. So, you know, I, I think that's what I mean by you have to believe in something and you have, you have to stand for something. And I think uh, when you do that, uh, it also helps to have a lead in. Uh, I can give you the example of the television program on Fox called House that we produced uh, at NBC for Fox. Uh, and in its first year, it, was, it, it did terribly. Nobody watched it. And in fact, the president of Fox Entertainment called me because we were producing it and said that they were cutting back the order on it. And that was going to be the end of House. Uh, and then they decided that spring to give it a tryout behind uh, this hit show called American Idol. And uh, House is now in its eighth season and been a huge uh, success. So having a lead in also matters, things like that. So I think that, that, that's a little bit about you know, trying to find a hit and, and believing in something and, and being lucky as well. Uh, you know, I mean, we talked about American Idol. I think American Idol has probably been the most important television entertainment show of the last 20 years um, because it, it propelled so many hits behind it and destroyed so many shows that went against it. With regard to messages being delivered through entertainment programming, and, and um, you know, I think that um, I think that that does still exist, perhaps not to the degree that you found in Northern Exposure, but I think that there are examples uh, where that happens. I mean, you know, we had the we had the hit show on NBC for many years, ER, and I think there were a lot of messages that were delivered about the medical system through ER. I think it helps when you're a success. It helps when you have the, the perch of a John Wells who created and executive produced that show. You know, there's a brand new show that's been on the air, I don't know, I think four weeks on NBC uh, that probably nobody in this room has seen uh, called Harry's Law, starring Kathy Bates. And, you know, that comes from David Kelly, uh, who did Northern Exposure, okay? If you, if, you know, if you watched Harry's Law, it's Kathy Bates playing a, a small-town lawyer. There are some messages within Harry's Law that you know are very much in the in the vein of David Kelly, uh, and and some messages about the criminal justice system and things like that uh, that are are vintage David Kelly. So I think these things still exist. By the way, some of the animated shows on Fox on Sunday, where they deign to even take on their own you know News Corp, uh, you know. There are programs out there where, where you're still getting some of this. So listen, do I think that do I think you're getting um, do I think you're getting societal messages through the uh, Real Housewives of New Jersey? No, um, maybe it says something about society, but but I don't think you're getting messages about society. Uh, uh, you know, so I think you have to you have to search them out. It's it's not it's not. Every program. So, what is the Charlie Sheen message? I mean, would you say? <laughs> well, I think the message there is that he needs help, um, and that's just a sad personal thing. Um, and uh, let's all hope that that he finds that help. Well, as you as you look ahead for television, uh, you've got things like uh, digital recorders now. You've got on demand that is providing thousands of of uh, choices. You've got Roku that is allowing you to take anything that was streamed on your computer and put it on your television um, and you can basically avoid commercials easily if you want to. Uh, and you can also 
watch anything when you want to. Yeah. Uh, this I know has been something that has been worrying for television for a long time. Is that a problem that is really overblown or is that something that is going to be, how, how is that going to play out as you see it? Well, it's not overblown in, in, in the sense of, uh, you know, these programs that we're talking about, whether you want to go back to Northern Exposure and Cheers and Seinfeld or, you know, uh, or Harry's Law and House and even American Idol, they cost real money to produce, okay? So if you want to continue to, uh, if you want to continue to enjoy programs like that, they have to be paid for somehow. And the traditional way that that's always been done is through advertising. So if all the technology is going to skip that advertising and we're not going to get paid for it, then that's going to be a problem. Now, I do think that what we're going to have to do is monetize eyeballs in different ways so that if you're watching it on demand or uh, uh, you're watching it on Hulu or you're watching it through some other uh, delivery system, we're just going to have to, I think the key, I think the biggest issue for all the media companies over the next five years is how do they figure out how to monetize all, all those viewers. People are watching these shows in greater numbers than have ever watched them. They're just not watching it in their initial airing on one of the networks the way that we always used to. And are they watching the commercials? Well, uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, the fact is the DVR, the digital video recorder, is probably the, the, the single most uh, hurtful thing to, to the, the networks, even more so than, than streaming where there is advertising that can't be skipped. Um, so that, that, the DVR is actually the, big, the biggest issue. I think what the problem for the media companies to, to attack over the next five years is how do you monetize it through through all the different ways that you're going to re-aggregate the audience that used to watch it at one time in its initial exploitation uh, when that program aired, and then you couldn't find it any other and way. How might that be done? Well, I mean, look, I think that, that new forms of measuring viewership, uh, um, you know, you have to believe that with the Internet there's new ways to do that. I think everybody's trying to figure that out. Uh, through integration, uh, through uh, branded content, Advertise. I, I, I'm not so caught up in, look, you know, uh, the, the nightly news program at NBC, you know, used to be sponsored by a cigarette company and had, it, had a cigarette uh, company's name on it. And yet today, if we thought about doing that, you know, the, the world would like, you know, the, there would be, you know, front page articles in the New York Times for 10 weeks in a row. My only point is, my only point is, uh, you know, we're kind of going back to, way, to the way uh, television began, where there were single sponsors and there was integrated advertising and, and branded content. I don't think that we should be so afraid of it. And I think there's going to have to be some understanding of that. Do you think the thing today with AOL and the Huffington Post has meant that the nightly news programs, the network nightly news programs, have longer? I think that people have been probably coming to this uh, institution and predicting the demise of uh, evening news programs for the last 20 years. And, um, and so uh, I continue to believe that the evening news programs at the broadcast networks will be around for the next 10 years. Look, anybody who's going to sit here and tell you knows what the world looks like after 10 years, you should kick them out of the room because th that's, that's silly. But, but, you know, I think that... Uh, I think that those programs are still attracting 25 to 30 million viewers every night. The ratings of those programs through the shooting in Arizona and to what's happening in Egypt over the last you know, month have attracted really sizable audiences. Now, are they, are they what they were 20 years ago when they were the only sources of news and information in the world? No, but that's a, that's a silly comparison. And we have to get over that. And, uh, and are they attracting viewers in any sizable numbers under the age of 35? No, they're really not. You know? But that's where AOL and Huffington Post will figure out what, what that future is. But in the meantime, those evening news programs have incredibly important, sizable audiences. Nobody should diminish the value of a viewer who's 60 years old, who still has tremendous buying power and uh, intellectual importance uh, just because they're 60. And so those evening news programs are incredibly important. They're gonna, they, they continue to, 
to be important and they continue to generate sizable audiences that nobody should snicker at. Let me, let me open this up to, uh, to your questions. There is a mic here and a mic there. If you would just identify yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Joel Lingardio. I'm a mid-career student at the Kennedy School. Uh, can you or do you want to talk about Conan and Jay? Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Conan is, and Jay. Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno. Is, what, what do you want to know? Is, <laughs> is that one you'd like to have back? No. no, no well, no. But is there anything specific? Yeah, or, should I, I mean, or should I just... Yeah, yeah. Talk extemporaneously. Download. But, but no, download. No, no. Oh, well, great. Let me, let me explain. How long do we got? There may, there may be some folks in here who don't know what we're talking There's about. There's no folks in here who don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> there are, I think, okay. I think for, for all, quite frankly. You don't know what we're talking about? As, as far as NBC is concerned, oh. a lot of the people in this room are not even American. So, oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. So Jay Leno was an iconic late night host of a television well, show. Well, he still is, by the way. Was. <laughs> and, and, uh, and my understanding is that it was your decision to try to take him out of that spot and put him in prime time. Uh, that did not work, and so he went back to his old show, which meant putting the person who was in the spot out. Which who was, was Conan O'Brien. Okay, so, Conan so O'Brien. okay, no problem, by the way. Uh, but you might want to sit down behind him because this doesn't take a minute or two. But uh, no, I'm teasing. Um, so, so just some, a little quick background for everybody. So Conan, Conan and I went to college here together. Okay, he was a year ahead of me. We both lived in Mather House, uh, just down the river. Okay, and uh, and he was president of the Lampoon for two years, and I was president of the Crimson. I know Conan for a long time. Okay, I know Conan for about 30 years. Um, and we were actually friends. I mean, we were friendly rivals when we were here because he was at the Lampoon, I was at the Crimson. It is a true story that I had him arrested one night for uh, stealing stuff out of the Crimson uh, by the Cambridge police. Um, uh, Which he thought very amusing, no doubt. Yeah, I, I think he found it amusing, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, um, so I, I, let me just, so, so the background is I know Conan for, for almost 30 years, and, uh, and we've worked together uh, at NBC for a long, long time. We uh, agreed probably six years ago at this point to give Conan the Tonight Show um, after the 2008, 2009 year. And, uh, and Jay Leno, who had been number one at the Tonight Show for almost 16 years, um, w- would move on. Uh, we decided when that moment came that um, we were going to honor our commitment to Conan. We were going to give him 1135. But we didn't really want Jay to leave. He was still number one, he was still strong, and if he left, he was going to go across the street to our competitors and compete against uh, uh, Conan. And that wouldn't have been good for us or Conan. We also realized that we had a little bit of an issue at 10 o'clock with our programming, in large part because of digital video recorders, where people didn't really watch the programs that were on at 10 o'clock. They were actually recording something from yesterday or earlier in the night and playing it back at 10 o'clock. And we were also trying to you know, uh, look at the new economics of television. So we, we had this idea of putting Jay Leno at 10 o'clock, stripped across, putting Conan at 11.30. Here, here's the biggest issue. Both shows failed. Jay didn't work at 10, and Conan's show didn't, uh, wasn't broad enough for us at 11.35. Uh, and, you know, the Tonight Show on a broadcast network like NBC has to attract a, lar- a large, broad audience, and Conan didn't do that at 11.35. The biggest problem is that both shows failed. We made the decision then that Jay had the best chance of success at 11.30, and we decided to put Jay back at 11.30. We offered Conan to stay. He did not want to stay. He, he thought he was owed the 11.30 time slot. It's my belief that nobody's owed anything in television. Um, and, uh, and he decided he wanted to leave. Um, it was a very painful uh, period for the company and for me personally, um, both on a personal relationship with Conan and, and for the way it was portrayed publicly. I do not regret that we took a shot at what we did with Jay at 10 o'clock. I think that if you don't try new things, then, uh, then you will get left behind. And so I regret that it didn't work, but I don't regret that we took a shot. Uh, I think it's a sign of leadership to uh, try something, and I also think it's a sign of leadership to step up and say when something didn't work, you reverse course, and and actually step up as soon as you can, and uh, and not be afraid to admit publicly that it didn't work and that you made a mistake. 
we, it didn't work. You know, did we make a mistake? I don't regret that we tried it. It didn't work. We stepped up and said that. Uh, the mistake that we made was that when we made the decision to put Jay back at 11.30, 11.35, uh, and to take Conan out of there, we let Conan stay on the air for two weeks. And that gave him a platform to attack us and to attack Jay. And that was a huge mistake. And we let it become somewhat of a national soap opera. And um, we thought we were doing the right thing by Conan in giving him those two weeks. And in the end, that was a mistake. And the biggest lesson I learned from that is when you make that, when you make that decision, take him off the air right away. Um, and, uh, um, and I regret that. I regret that it uh, hurt my friendship with Conan. I regret that it played out the way it did, and um, uh, I regret that uh, we went through that uh, very difficult two-week period. Yes, sir. I think you just told us something about Keith Olbermann. <clears throat> uh, my name is George Mokray. I'm 60, and I've been uh, blogging before there was bloggers. So, and I, I wasn't trying to denigrate bloggers, by the no, way. No, 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 no. And, and Thank God I don't consider myself a journalist. Okay. Um, Clay Shirky was here last February, and uh, he talked about what I think is the fundamental issue in terms of advertiser-supported media, which is the advertising business. And the advertising business is going through enormous changes, it seems to me. and. Very few people are talking about it. It affects magazines, it affects newspapers, it affects TV, it affects radio. And it seems to be an underlying uh, problem in all of advertising-supported media, which is what most of our media universe has been. Can you talk about the advertising business, the advertising numbers, and the changes that you see in the advertising business and how it might affect TV, radio, newspapers, magazines? Well, I forget, uh, I can't remember at this point who said, uh, you know, um, I know that, uh, you know, only 50% of the advertising is effective. I just don't know which 50%. So, you know, and that's what sustained you know, advertising on all of those mediums because you never wanted to take the risk that you weren't advertising. You know, if people didn't believe that advertising didn't work, then, then there wouldn't have been all that interest last night and in all the ads on, on the Super Bowl. Uh, and if advertising didn't work, then there wouldn't be all this interest in trying to figure out how to, uh, how to figure out advertising online and, and integrating it with all the new tablets and, and all this stuff. Advertising works. Uh, it's just a question of evolving and certainly finding new ways of, of marketing your message through all the new devices and technological advances that, that exist, smartphones and tablets and uh, the internet and, and whatever. Um, you know, advertising has always evolved from black and white to color to from radio to television. Uh, we're in one of those evolutionary periods again. But I don't think that I think advertising is incredibly effective. Um, it's just a question of how it evolves with the new technology. It will continue to change. But without advertising, people won't be able to market their messages. People won't be able to uh, tell you know, uh, their consumers about the sale at the car lot next weekend. Um, and you know, I don't know how you, uh, how you monetize your blog um, but other bloggers uh, are trying to do so through advertising, and that's how they're going to survive. And, uh, and so we've got, to, uh, we've got to figure out what the most effective use of advertising in a new blogosphere internet world is. Do you think that there is a uh, prospect for paid uh, access to the web, or do you think that is, a, that is really something that's not going to work very well? I think it depends on the content. Um, I think it, uh, it, uh, you know, I think, I think by and large, by and large, information wants to be free, but I think content is expensive, and so you got to, you have to, uh, you have to juggle those two things. Um, you know, I think about journalism. I mean, look, I mean, you think about journalism in the internet. Uh, I was not the first person to say this, but I wholeheartedly believe it which is that it's, uh, it's cheap to be first, and it's expensive to be right. 
And, uh, and in order to, by the way, I'm not the one that came up with that saying, but, but I agree with it. And, uh, and I think it's why, it, uh, why real journalism does matter, but real journalism is expensive. Hi. Um, I have two brief questions. Um, Could you identify yourself, please? Oh, my name is Jason Rowe. I'm a student at the Kennedy School. I have two brief questions um, about sort of the interaction with uh, the media and labor relations. The first is, I was wondering if you could comment briefly about the writer's strike a few years back and how this um, challenge of monetizing programs in response to sort of the new delivery systems, the implications of that challenge on an equitable pay structure for um, you know, everyone involved in these programs' productions. And then secondly, um, sitting one day removed from the Super Bowl, if you could comment briefly on um, what the impending NFL lockout is, is sort of what effect that's going to have on the networks. Um. So um, I, I, with regard to the first question and, and the writer's strike, and, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, I think we're all struggling to figure out how to monetize these new technologies. And, um, and the creators of that content are, you know, are just as vocal about that. And they deserve their, their share of it, no question. Um, I think at that time when that happened three years ago, or uh, I don't remember the exact date, um, you know, there really was no clear uh, monetization of the content at the time. And um, they were worried about the future. Now that writer's contract is up again this year. And so I think they'll have the same conversations. Uh, you know, the DGA and the, uh, and the, the Actors Guild have already uh, come to terms on new deals. So I'm, I would hope that, that the writers will, will be able to do the same. But I think it's, you know, I think that's part of the same conversation, which is how are we going to get paid? You know, how are media companies going to get paid? How are the uh, performers and the, the content creators going to get paid? And I think that, you know, that's an ongoing conversation. With regard to the NFL, look, the NFL just had its best season ever in terms of ratings um, across the board. Last night's uh, numbers, I haven't seen the final numbers. It's probably going to be the most watched Super Bowl ever, if not, you know, one of the most watched television events ever. Um, you know, I think it would be very, uh, it would be uh, very unfortunate for not just the networks who have come to rely on those ratings in a significant way, but also the country. You know, I mean, I, th I do think this is a, this is a societal uh, thing, and, and so I hope that, that both sides will work that out. But how it affects the broadcast networks or, or all the, the cable networks as well, look, uh, these are the highest rated things in television today, the NFL. And so it would have a substantial impact if the NFL were not there. I am uh, Dan Vitoli, a joint degree student at the Kennedy School at HBS. So I wanted to uh, come back again today, a slightly easier topic of how to identify the next top shows. Yeah, the slightly easier topic, yeah. yeah. So, um, so you mentioned a little bit how you can take existing products and then push them by lining them up after shows like American Idol. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the development stages of how, what criteria do you use to evaluate new projects and how involved do you get in the top team? Yeah, well, um, you know, the development process is uh, unwieldy for, sh for sure. Um, you know, look, it, because nobody knows for sure what's going to work, you could say, well, you know, well, then just, you know, have an animal pick the, uh, pick the what projects you want to do. Uh, I do think we hire people who have a little bit of a gut and a feeling for these things, and they make determinations on concepts they hear or scripts that they read. Uh, and that they, they, they want to develop, and it goes through the development process. Uh, I think historically there's some evidence that the more involved that executives get in the development process, the worse the project becomes. Uh, and so the more that we could stay out of it, often the better. Um, there is no magic formula to any of it. Um, What's the wrongest you've ever been about a prospective NBC primetime show? 
Um, In what you expected. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody ever expected the West Wing to become as big and broad and popular as it did. Um, but we probably should have bet on Aaron Sorkin um, to do that. Um, you know, uh, I think we thought that the Joey spinoff of Friends would be a big success. And that w it was not. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that one should have worked. It didn't. The stars help her? You know, unpredictable? Yeah, it, there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, you know, Joey should have worked. Uh, but I can tell you Harry's Law wouldn't be working today without Kathy Bates. So, you know, I think, um, again, it's the right vehicle at the right time with the right person. There's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of serendipity involved. Um, stars don't necessarily hurt, but they don't guarantee success. Why is it so difficult to do funny? Well, because it's incredibly subjective. You know, what well, you think is funny, I, I, I don't think is funny at all. Well... Seinfeld, for instance. I mean, my, my wife's father was the least Seinfeldish person in the world. He lived in Vermont. Uh, he loved that show. He loved that show, and he got it. Uh, I guess the thing is, you go back to these iconic comedies, yeah. The Honeymooners and Mary Tyler Moore and Seinfeld and so forth, and, and you know, I know that there is real work and artistry there, but there are also very talented people working on things that are... I would imagine, intended to be the Seinfelds and those of today. Well, I think part of, it, part of it is, you know, when the Honeymooners, which I agree, by the way, is the best comedy of all time, um, uh, you know, it's just such a different era. And even, even when you go back to Seinfeld, it's just such a different era. Today, the, the ability to put a comedy on TV land, cable network, you know, it's so diffused and it's so spread out. And the talent has an ability to, to work across so many different platforms. It's so much harder for that serendipity to all come together at one time in one place. Uh, you know, it, it would seem easy, but it's... it's oh, I don't think it's easy. I no, 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 but, but, you know, I mean, the fact is, um, you know, we, we sit here and we think about, you know, we say, oh, I love Lucy, why can't they do that again? Or, but the fact is, you know, we have a romantic memory as well because the fact is there were a lot of bad programs back then too mm. and you know we only remember the great ones yes uh, Zachary Cashel student here at the Kennedy School I'm just curious to hear more about um, decision making at a at a high executive level particularly I was struck by how you mentioned that Cheers and Seinfeld both were not hits yeah. immediately and contrasting that with your discussion of the Jay Leno Conan O'Brien situation some would regard it as you didn't give enough time so how do you yeah. at that level decide how long is enough when do you change yeah. course in the process of decision making? Well uh, one there's no magic formula so you don't know for sure how long to give anything and again you just got to go with your gut the, the one difference between those examples you cited is remember that Jay and Conan were on five nights a week Okay, and, and they also had a track record of having been on for you know, more than 15 years apiece. Whereas Cheers and Seinfeld and The Office and shows like that were on once a week. So there, there's a little bit of a difference. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I think it, it does come down to believing in something and standing for something and having the courage of your convictions. Uh, and, you know, I mean, part of the problem of the world we live in today is that you know, uh, there, is, there is microscopic coverage of everything, you know, and so last night's ratings are covered on a thousand different sites, you know, by 8.30 a.m. And so we want instant cancellation if it didn't work last night, which is crazy, you know, and we're, we live in a world where there's instant criticism of everything, you know. The halftime show at the Super Bowl last night was the worst halftime show ever. Okay. It's like, you know, it, it, we don't give any, anybody any credit. And we don't give anybody any time. We want instant satisfaction. We want instant success. And I think that is, you know, that's crazy. So I think you have to have the courage to withstand. It's so much harder today 
when everybody is, uh, every, you know, everybody's a critic and every one of these jobs is easy. You know, and, and I think it makes these jobs much, much harder because, you know, I think a lot about it in terms of public service. Uh, you know, who in their right mind would want to go into public service given the amount of, you know, criticism that you, and, and the microscope that you put yourself under? And where you say, oh, well, you should be able to withstand it. You know, nobody can withstand the, kind, the, the, the amount of criticism. Nobody's perfect, and nobody's even close to being perfect. And no program is perfect, and no halftime show is perfect, and, and, and no article that's written is ever perfect. But yet, that's what we demand because we can all tweet, you know, that we would have done it better. Hi, Jeff. Lowen Kelly. I'm a... Um, Longtime producer at CBS News, uh, and or was I should say, and was a fellow here at the Shorenstein Center a year ago. Um, I guess my question is, uh, in, if you could just elaborate a little bit more about um, news online and what you think of how much change there, how it's doing so yeah. far. I mean, I, what I what I find interesting is that. You know, you have the 20 million people watching the nightly news, but what's the migration online, yeah. it really doesn't look anything right. like. There, you know, it's, and whereas everything else that sort of has migrated, sort of, you, you know, you're watching a movie on TV, you're watching a movie online. But yeah. there's no, I mean, the video online is not. Well, I, th I think one of the mistakes that's been made, especially in this world, is to just take what's on television and put it online in the news and information. And, and nothing's been created for online. Mm -hmm. You know, now Rupert Murdoch's trying it with the daily for the iPad, and I don't know if that'll work or not. Uh, but at least he's, he's trying to create it without moving, you know, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post or to online. Uh, and I think in the television news world, mm -hmm. uh, it's, being it's being created on television and just put online rather than anything being thought of. One-minute clips. Right, exactly, of, you know, what do people want online? And I do think one of the things over the next five years is actually for people to stop and think, if I'm going to do news and information online, particularly in video, and in a video world, and, a, and in a world where everybody is, is using video on their smartphone or whatever device they are, what, how, should that, uh, how should that be developed? And I don't think anybody's really done that do you think anyone's talking about it? I mean, are I think people are talking about it. Yeah. Um, I think the Daily is an example of is that. The, is the iPad tablet going to be as ubiquitous as as it has been hyped to be? I mean, the Daily is for an iPad. It's right. not online. Just in, for the in, iPad. In yeah, any yeah. other sense, and that is a big bet on something that may or may not actually happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I only use that as one example, mm -hmm. but. Um, uh, will the iPad be ubiquitous? Uh, you know, if it's not the iPad, it'll be a tablet, you know, like that. I think the key for that is for people to really, over the next five years, think about developing this content organically for an online world rather than to move it from where it's been. Can I just a quick follow-up? I mean, do you see it being also, just in, with the video in particular, being sort of more of a lean-back experience? I mean, in the sense that it's so much work to get news, I think, for a lot of people, in that you have to go, you know, you go in and out of video and um, with the advertising yeah. and whatnot. Well, I think part of that is, uh, I mean, I think that's part of what the evolution will be over the next five years. I think that, again, I think the key is for people to develop news and information for the online world rather than to just, look, I think the Huffington Post was an attempt to do that uh, in much more of a text uh, way, and, and I think the the key will be to do that in a video way. I think the daily is trying to do that for the iPad way, and I think to, to, for others, we'll, we'll try to figure it out in a, in a different way. Final question here. Yep. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Chen Zhe. I'm a visiting fellow from S Center Kennedy School. Um, I'm doing a research on media and um, international relations. Uh, since I'm here, I'm reading Professor Joe Nye's very famous piece on cyber power. And he mentioned about uh, the soft power um, lies in agenda setting, uh, persuasion. And um, so um, my question is, um, I used to be uh, working for media as well. From a, a journalist perspective, we consider journalism as objective. 
uh, we, we shouldn't be in, in influenced by the government. But however, um, what's your comment, um, Professor Nice, uh, idea that media could serve as a soft power? And there are some researchers, they did research on um, how media turn to reflect government uh, sourcing. So I really want to see your opinion. Well, um, that's a big topic. Uh, look, I think that um, I think the media uh, plays an incredibly important role in society in actually um, uh, holding the government responsible and making the government responsible. And um, it's why, um, you know, even though I say that the even journalists and the and people are so critical initially of everything today, I think that's probably a safer system in our ability and uh, willingness to have that kind of society than a society where there is no uh, there is no um, government uh, being held to held responsible by journalists. So. I also do think that the media, um, you know, the media can influence. The media does influence. You look at what John Stewart did uh, recently in getting uh, action taken uh, to help the victims of uh, the, the, the people, the responders of 9/11. Without what John Stewart did, and the and the senator from New York uh, obviously deserves credit as well, then that probably doesn't happen. Uh, and that you know, and he shamed both the government into action and more traditional media outlets into covering it. And that was the right thing to do. So, you know, I think the media can play a big role in pushing and forcing the government, and I think also in holding the government responsible. We've run out of time. Jeff Zucker, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.